Well, good morning, Jericho Ridge and all of our guests. I invite you guys to uh, grab your, your coffee, your beverage, and uh, find a seat again. I'm just getting set up here. I remember Tyler Harper last week playing with a music stand, so I'm going to do the same here and get it set up. My name is Dave McFarland, and I'm uh, part of our leadership team here at Jericho Ridge, and I, I'm not usually part of the teaching team, uh, but it's a, definitely a, a privilege and an honor to, uh, to be on, on the platform this morning and uh, to open God's Word uh, and to uh, reflect a little bit. We're in the middle of a, of a teaching series uh, called Your Kingdom Come, and we're, uh, we've been working through and we've had very different voices, uh, myself included, uh, who are going to share. But uh, again, a very warm welcome to, uh, to each and every one of you, especially our guests from uh, Wagner Hills have joined us today, and uh, I know for a fact that there's uh, people who will be listening in on podcast uh, later, so this is recorded forever, so <laughs> here we go. Uh, some, of the, some of the series items that we've heard before have been on, on power, and uh, that the power structure in the kingdom looks different than, than it does in other kingdoms. We've talked about uh, that the kingdom of God appears on the margins. It comes in places that we don't always expect. Uh, and uh, Curtis uh, reported out on, on Guatemala a few weeks ago as we started our series and talking about the work that we do down there and the partnership we have. And, and that's part of the kingdom as well. We talked about surrendering. And uh, we've talked uh, also about politics. Kingdoms have kings. And it's a political structure and what that looks like as well. Last week, uh, Tyler Harper spoke about the tension uh, between how much of the kingdom uh, of God is being realized in the here and now as we see it unfolding. And and Christians often talk about the kingdom and uh, we pray, your kingdom come. And it's it's here, but it's not yet here. And uh, we refer to that as as a tension, the already and the not yet uh, tension. So that was last week. And so the title of uh, my sermon today is, uh, I'm kind of borrowing a, a cliche from the business world, which um, I don't like cliches, and uh, I'm not in the business world, so I'm just, I'm just stealing it. Uh, you've probably heard this phrase before, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And uh, I, I, again, it's a little bit of a cliche, and uh, it's probably... You could almost see a little bit, uh, there's a, a, a negative aspect to that, that you don't actually have to know anything, um, you know, just uh, grease the wheels or it's patronage or, uh, or you, know, you, you know, a friend of a friend and, and gets you into something. It sort of has that, that connotation. But I want to press uh, a little bit beyond that and, and use it beyond its cliched form and thinking about things that we do know and being studied and, and uh, being knowledgeable about the things of God. Uh, for those of you, if you've grown up in the church and you've been around uh, church culture, for those uh, who maybe have not and, and, and come in and are, are just uh, taking in the word and, and community and fellowship and wanting to know things, uh, but it actually is at the center of the kingdom there is a king, and that king is Jesus, and he wants to know us. And we need to know him. It's not ultimately about all the things that we know. And so we're going to jump into uh, Scripture this morning. And uh, my, the passage that was, uh, was selected for me and, and I've been thinking about uh, for the last few weeks uh, comes from Mark's Gospel. Uh, and it's uh, in chapter 12. 
And so I'm just going to give a little bit of, a, of the, the context for what's been happening in the story so far, and, and then we're going to read just a short passage uh, together. So this is uh, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, and, and this is the time when this is leading up to Easter. This is leading up to what's called the, uh, Jesus' Passion or the Holy Week and all of His activities in and around Jerusalem. And it's, it's kind of interesting that we've been talking about sort of the paradoxes of the kingdom. Most of Jesus' work and ministry and, and all of his public, uh, the things that he was doing were, took place outside of the centers of power. They took place uh, with not just people in the margins, but also, if you know the geography of where he was operating, uh, it was also on the margins. But he's entered into Jerusalem. It's the, uh, the, this is just after the triumphal entry and all of the stuff that we celebrate leading up to Easter uh, just a few weeks ago. And he has interactions with various people. And some of you know, this, uh, know these stories. Uh, and he has interactions with various religious leaders of the day. And these are always revealing his kingdom priorities. Earlier in the chapter, in chapter 12, this is that very famous uh, dialogue, discourse that Jesus has. And this is the one section in my notes that I'm using, uh, the King James, because you probably know this phrase, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, and give unto God, render unto God that which is God's. And this is that, that dialogue. They're trying to, the leaders are trying to trap Jesus, uh, sort of a, a political riddle, right? They're under occupation, uh, the Roman Empire, and the religious leaders, uh, they span this spectrum of collaborating with that power uh, to you have zealots who want to overthrow that power, and they thought, ah, the controversial rabbi, Jesus, and let's see if we can trick him in this political riddle. But in the answer that Jesus gives... Give to Caesar, give to the emperor what belongs to the emperor, and give to God uh, what belongs to God. It's not actually uh, an either-or scenario. I, I always thought that it was, that, that we, can, we can do this divide and say, okay, that stuff belongs to the government or to politics, uh, to the things of this world, and, uh, and then we'll do the spiritual stuff on this side, and that stuff belongs to God. Uh, but Jesus' answer doesn't actually do that. Uh, you know, the face of the emperor is on, on the coin, so that belongs to the emperor and to the empire. Uh, but every devout Jew that would have been listening in to the conversation, and the dialogue, and the, the quizzing that Jesus would have uh, experienced, they would know that everything belongs to God. And we would affirm that too. God is sovereign. Everything belongs to God. So this question of giving to God what is God's, uh, it's... It's not an either-or. The second uh, scenario just leading up before the passage we're about to read is a theological riddle. And uh, these are the religious leaders uh, gathered around, and they ask Jesus uh, this highly unlikely scenario. You know, you create these questions that are largely fictitious. They would never happen in real life. So, you know, like you read this math problem, and so that would never happen, uh, or these scenarios. And this is one of those uh, odd scenarios. There are seven brothers. Kind of sounds like a, a musical or something. And there are seven brothers, and one of them's married, and then he dies. And so the, other, another, the second brother comes in and, and marries his, his wife to look after in that culture. And you fo this scenario follows through. All seven of them die, like this you know, horrendous scenario. All seven brothers gone. And the Sadducees, the leaders, ask Jesus. There's, so... In the resurrection, like in the afterlife, who's, 
who's her husband? Like, it's this riddle. And it's not a sincere question. Uh, the text goes into, into uh, great detail and, and in terms of history of the Sadducees, they don't even believe in an afterlife. They don't even believe, this is, it's an insincere question. And what Jesus does, this is sort of this smackdown moment, is uh, he calls out their lack of knowledge of the scriptures. And uh, marriage doesn't exist in the resurrection. And he, uh, he quotes uh, from the Old Testament. And then he says, God is the God of the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of Moses in the burning bush. It's the God of the living. It's not, it doesn't actually matter uh, about death. So he, he deconstructs this question, and he, he, he rips it apart. So that's what's been going on. You've got the, you've got the political riddle that, that Jesus gives this profound answer to that uh, I, I could spend, you know, a whole series trying to unpack. And then there's this theological riddle uh, that Jesus beats them at their own game. And now we get to verse 28. So uh, if you have your Bible, uh, and you're welcome to turn to Mark chapter 12, and it's also on the screen here. This is uh, Mark chapter 12, and we're going to start at verse 28. So before I I read uh, the words of Scripture, let me pray for us and our, our time this morning. Lord God, thank you so much. Uh, for your church uh, that you are building, for your kingdom as we see it all around us breaking in uh, to our lives, uh, into your world that you've made. Lord, we're also very, very aware of places where your kingdom has not yet broken through. We know it's coming, the victory has been won, uh, but we live in that tension of what we know ought to be and is not yet in our personal lives, in our family life, and in the life of the world. Lord, would you join us this morning as we open your word and reflect on what you would have for us, each and every one of us. Uh, You've brought us here this morning, and uh, we want to, myself included, sit under um, the words of Jesus uh, as we apply them to our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 28 of of Mark says this, So one of the teachers of the religious law was standing there listening to the debate, what we were just listening to. He realized that Jesus had answered well. So he asked, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replied, The most important commandment is this, Listen, O Israel. The Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The teacher of religious law replied, Well said, teacher. You have spoken truth by saying that there is only one God and no other. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices required by the law. Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. 
So we have this scenario of a teacher of religious law. Uh, in other trends, this is, this is one of the, the Sadducees, and we'll unpack that in a second. But I, I reflect a little bit on, the, there's a parallel here. The teacher of religious law realizes something. He realizes uh, that Jesus is answering well. He's beating these guys at their own game. He's one of them. And he, he realizes, I'm going I'm to pitch another question to him. And then later on in, in verse 34, Jesus replies, and, and it says that Jesus realized that this man answered well. So there's, actually, there's this synergy that is suddenly happening here. The Sadducee, the religious leader, the one who is part of this group that is uh, not only threatened by Jesus, not only uh, wanting to, to sort of tear him down or, or point, poke holes and, and flaw and feels a, a personal threat and also a social political threat uh, to their whole system under occupation and the, the temple and all of that, uh, he realizes, they both realize something and a strong parallel there. Some of you will know, of course, the passage that Jesus is quoting here is called the Shema, which is a Jewish dev- a devotional prayer uh, from, the Old, from uh, Deuteronomy, and it is pray, the, the Lord uh, is one, uh, hear, O Israel, and loving the Lord with our hearts, our soul, our mind, and all of our strength. And this is prayed in the morning, this is prayed in the evening, and uh, so he answers well. Jesus knows the scriptures. Uh, this man recognizes and observes that, that this is a, a devout thing, and it's a good thing to answer. And the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And so there's two things going on here. Jesus answers well, and a, re- a teacher of religious law recognizes it. There's two things. There's the vertical, right? There's the relationship between God. Know the Lord, love the Lord your God, and there's this vertical between humanity and God who is wholly other, totally not uh, part of creation, but above it. And then there's the horizontal. How do we relate to our neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. And we know uh, many of the the teachings of Jesus around uh, how we relate to other people. And that's the horizontal relationship. And then it says that no one dared, they heard this interaction, and then nobody dared to ask him any more questions. And I often wondered, so nobody, nobody dared, is it that, that Jesus is now, like, that's like, you know, you know three, three hits and, and uh, done the political thing, done the theological thing, and then, like, the spiritual devotional thing, like, just hits it out of the park, right? Like, you know, now everybody will shut up. Like, nobody, you know, like, he's, he's won. And that, that probably... There's, there's a part, part of that. Uh, but no one dared to ask him any more questions. I wonder what the disciples would be thinking as well when they would, when they would hear this and they realize, uh, they see that Jesus is actually in concord, in agreement with this Sadducee, this religious leader, who they, up until this point, has been seen as, as the enemy or been seen as someone who's trying to foil or prevent or stop what Jesus is, is doing. And so this takes me to... Uh, a, a statement that I want to throw out there and, and have us think about, that actually the Sadducees, the religious leaders uh, as a group, are probably not who we think they are. And uh, so I found this, I, I do this all the time when I'm, I teach high school, and uh, so my students know, uh, you know, Google, well, they think they know Google better than I do, uh, but, uh, you know, Google images, if you type in Sadducee, this is one of the first ones uh, that comes up. 
And you take a look at this image, and, and some of you know these, these types of images uh, of, the, of the religious leaders in the temple. You know, this is called the second temple period, around, and, and Jesus is interacting with them. And, and you look at these guys, right? Uh, sort of the, the, the sour faces, the inquisitive uh, looking, and uh, very much judgmental. And uh, they, are, they are part of a system uh, that they are very much interested in preserving and keeping going. Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, the chief priest, uh, the Jewish governing council, the Sanhedrin. Uh, we read about these in the Gospels, and uh, I have to, uh, I freely admit, I have to admit, uh, sometimes they all kind of blend together to me, right? Like they all just seem like, okay, so it's just this one big group of people, religious people who are opposed to what Jesus is doing. They tend to blend into one big foil, a giant coalition of suspicious elitists who feel threatened, they test, they trick Jesus, and they ultimately turn Jesus over to the Roman authorities. Now, the Sadducees were nostalgic. I teach history, and I talk a lot about nostalgia, sort of this longing for the past, back into the mists of time, and sort of this this longing for a period that may or may not have existed, or even if it did, we look at it through rose-colored lenses. It's always, you know, the good old days, we, we talk about that often. Uh, and that if, if you use the phrase, the good old days, or things, you know, they just, man, they just don't make stuff like they used to, right, or, or, or whatever, uh, we, we become nostalgic. They were nostalgic for monarchy. Uh, the Sadducees were nostalgic for a time when, when Israel wasn't under occupation. We know their, their story. This would have been uh, the group uh, that would use the phrase, and I almost, you know, make Israel great again. That's, that's... <laughs> These are these people. These are these people. Whenever you say the, I always am so interested. Any any phrase like I like to you know listen to different what's going on. The phrase again makes that a historical claim, and so that's in that's in my wheelhouse, and I'll deal with it. Uh, they, these this group of people collaborated with the uh, the Romans. They didn't want political trouble, and do their religious thing. They were also strict literalists. We call them fundamentalists in a sense. They actually uh, read uh, and they adhered to the written laws of Moses alone. So oral tradition, which, is, which was big in Judaism and still is, uh, was not considered uh, to, be, to have any authority. No oral tradition. Uh, and they, as we mentioned before, they didn't believe in the resurrection after death. We know about the, the insincerity. And so I talked about this group kind of all blending together, and Jesus deals with them, also deals with uh, the Pharisees. So for the sake of time, uh, or for the sake of, of my, my point here, it's the Sadducees, it's the religious leaders, and the Pharisees are another group. Two weeks ago, uh, you might remember, Pastor Brad spoke about uh, the kingdom and the, the Sermon on the Mount and being rules released. Was Jesus here to, to sort of break us from this whole system of rules and regulations that, that, that this group seems to be propping up. And when Jesus says that at the, towards the end of it, the famous Sermon on the Mount, he says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you won't inherit the, the kingdom. And I really don't think that Jesus was being sarcastic there. Like, I think there's an element of uh, every I was dotted, every T was crossed. Uh, these are upstanding uh, devout, devoted people. Uh, the Pharisees, 
Even the Sadducees, in, in how they live, their, uh, their, their spiritual lives, uh, in many ways, are exemplary. They're a group of people that actually we would, we, you know, we would say, wow, they're you know, very devoted and they're following. Yet the encounter that Jesus has with this particular Sadducee, the, the religious leader who recognizes and realizes something, uh, that encounter does not allow us to just compartmentalize this group of people simplistically and just say uh, they're one-dimensional characters and they're these foils. Speaking of one-dimensional characters, I have a picture of another character from Disney. And uh, I noticed the parallel. You know, when you look at the Sadducees and this, this image in particular, I don't know what it says about me as a person, uh, but I, I can't, when I, Disney, I, I like the songs and the characters, like the, the bad characters. They have the best songs, right? Like, <laughs> Be Prepared is my favorite song in The Lion King, right? And uh, you just take one look at Scar and you know you're not supposed to like this guy, up to no good, right? One-dimensional. And so this is my, my knock, you know, a little bit of a knock at, at Disney is they make it very clear who you're not supposed to like. Be prepared. The great irony of us typecasting or stereotyping or making one-dimensional characters out of these devout religious Jews as corrupt and standing in the way uh, is to fall, we can fall into the same trap in our own spirituality. I'm not, I'm not, well, I'm, I'm not a hyper-literalist or I'm not a religious fanatic or, or, or what have you, and, and I, I feel that I can, uh, I'm living rightly or, or morally, and I know, I know who's in and I know who's out. This is something that uh, German philosopher Hegel ident- calls negative identity. And negative identity uh, is defining yourself by what you're not. And this creates this split, something we call othering. We make a group of people or an individual the other. And what it does is it evades the question actually of, uh, it really doesn't actually answer who am I, who we are. Because groups of people and individuals, we can build identities that, that are negative in the sense that we're defined by what we're not. I'm not like that group of people over there. I don't do those activities, so I'm not, I'm not like them, and that doesn't define who I am. Human history is full of this, othering. At its root, stereotyping, superiority, it's at the root of racism, it's at the root of misogyny, it's at the, any elitism in the worst sense where you would say, uh, my group or my tribe or uh, what I do is inherently better because I'm not like them. Jesus talked about this all of the time. One of his parables actually brings in the story of a Pharisee. The Pharisee and the tax collector. You know this, many of you will know this story. And he stands up there, you know, and praying in the temple and he does othering. He, has a, he actually has a, a negative identity. He says, you know, he prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there. Like, I, I hope we don't pray like that, right? I, I think it's, it's in us. I, I am guilty of thinking this way. So I, I'm not, not as bad as those people over there. Thank goodness I'm not like that. And the kingdom priorities become evident yet again. 
when you have the tax collector who, I mean, substitute like tax collector. We again, we're so familiar, right? We have the we have the typecast. We know the tax collector in the in the Bible stories, just like we think we know the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And a tax collector substitute in, you know, a, a, a political lobbyist for a, a, a cause that you just absolutely despise, um, or some executive, uh, you know, on on Wall Street somewhere that's ripping off uh, customers and, uh, and, you know, economic just so problematic. And that's these tax collectors. They're, they're part and parcel of a, of a corrupt system. And he's down there contrite and broken, knows who he is. And Jesus says, that's, that's the heart. Not othering, not negative identity, knowing who you are. Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in, uh, in a novel that he wrote having experienced uh, Soviet uh, persecution under Stalin, uh, puts these words into one of his characters uh, who suffered so greatly. And I think this, uh, this cuts to the core of our sense of identity and who we are and how we see other people. The character says, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. I think this gets to a little bit of what's going on in this story with this religious leader who Jesus encounters. And we can be very quick if we, if we skim it fa- quickly and we, we notice in the story, oh, it's the Sadducee, it's the religious leaders. They're trying to mess Jesus up here and they're, they're the bad guys. And Jesus says, actually, you're not that far off. You kind of get it. You're not far from the kingdom and you answer well, and they have this agreement. So that leads us to, we need to unpack this around the kingdom. The kingdom isn't structured the way that we think it is. Thank you, Google Image, again. I typed in inverted pyramid. And what you don't expect when you see a building, I believe this is the national, part of the National Museum in, in Vietnam. I've never, never been. That, it looks like a really cool bit, but you, it catches your eye. It's not what you expect to see uh, when you see a, a building. The kingdom isn't structured the way uh, you and I think it is. One of the uh, helpful ways to think about this uh, is around uh, sets or how we organize uh, an organizing principle. Uh, and one of the helpful ways to view this is uh, what's called a bounded set or a centered set. So here's a graphic just to, to give you uh, a sense of illustration. We know in a bounded set who's in, who belongs, and who is on the outside. Clear cut. This is that, that idea of literalism, or this is that idea of uh, a very firm identity of those who are on the inside are not like those people over there. 
think back to what Solzhenitsyn was saying, right, about if we could just partition people. And in, in some sense, I mean, I don't want to, again, I don't want to be guilty of creating like this is all bad and, and this is all good. In some senses, a bounded set is a very helpful way. We know, you want to know, I mean, who's a citizen of your country and, and who's not? And who belongs to this group and has this affinity and, and who's on the outside? And one of the, the key defining thing you notice in this bounded set is the boundary. Borders. Lines in the sand. And, and, and you can think of how we, we talk, you know, crossing lines and uh, being, being in uh, being out or protecting borders, all of these, all of these things, we, we know who's in and who's out. One of the problems, of course, is that in a bounded set, it's, it becomes this complete binary. It's all or nothing. And it's, it's actually very static. If I sign on the dotted line or I say the prayer once, read this, agree to it, I'm in. And those people are out. Conversely, this idea of a centered set is a different way to view, or to, to, to view something orbiting around something else or the direction that you're headed. And by changing our, our view from boundaries to what we're focused on or direction, notice the arrows. It's not to say, of course, that there are no boundaries. It's not to, you can identify certain things that are in and certain things that are out. But all of those people, all of those groups have an orientation. They're pointed somewhere. They have a trajectory that they're moving towards. Jesus, when he, referred, when he talked to this religious teacher, he did say, you're not far from the kingdom. You've answered well, you're not far. There is, there is a sense of, there is a boundary. I mean, there are things that are of God and there are things that are not of God. There are patterns in our lives that are not good. And there are people who miss the boat. There are, and Jesus says, you're not far, which means you're not yet in, but he's actually referring to orientation, to direction that you're headed in. And in some ways, I, I, I love that the story places this into the character of a, of a religious leader, of a Sadducee, who I am very quick to say, oh, I wouldn't be like them uh, and those people over there. And I've made my boundary. You see, we get caught up in this. I suddenly am you know, I'm not like them. And Jesus puts this into that character who he interacts with and says, you know, you're almost there. Something you, so there's something missing, but you're almost there. One analogy that I've heard around centered versus bounded uh, set is, uh, is a helpful metaphor. All metaphors break down. I, I learned that very quickly when I'm trying to describe something to students, and it's like, you know, well, what about this, and, and what about that? But the helpful one that I've, I've heard uh, for thinking about direction and, the, and the, orienting ourselves uh, is that of, do you build fences or do you dig wells? And one of my grade 12 students would say, well, you do both, right? <laughs> build a fence and dig a well. Well, yes, you do. Uh, but think about what would, be the, what would be a better way, a better, a better organizing principle. Have really good fences 
to contain and know this is my property, that's not my property, and to keep my animals, you know, on, on my, my side of the fence. Or if you dig wells, and let's say you didn't have any fences, animals aren't going to want to wander too far away from those wells. And you think of wells, I think of thirst. And, and hung, hunger and thirst, do we have this sense of, are we thirsty? What's the direction that we're pointed to? Hungry people find food. Thirsty people will find something to drink rather than uh, fencing in. And fencing is, there's a, there's a time and a place for a boundary, right? There's a time and a place for protection uh, and for walls. But I think it's helpful to think of, of wells. And Jesus is talking to this religious leader. There's a thirst there. You recognize something. You're not far from the kingdom, Jesus says. Author and, and blogger and, and thinker Rachel Held Evans wrote in a book called Searching for Sunday. She says this, The gospel doesn't need a coalition devoted to keeping the wrong people out. It needs a family of sinners, saved by grace, committed to tearing down the walls, throwing open the doors and shouting, Welcome, there's bread and wine. Come eat with us and talk. This isn't a kingdom for the worthy. It's a kingdom for the hungry. We're moving in the church calendar, the rhythm of a spiritual year towards Pentecost. That's the time, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. It's the birth of of the church in Acts chapter 2. And it's with the Spirit's help that we are shaped and guided towards Christ-likeness that orientation. It's about knowing Jesus. It's not knowing about Jesus. I I started with a cliche, and uh, so this is another... uh, Clichés and stereotypes, they're always rooted in in an element of, of truth, and so I like to unpack them a little bit, even though it's like, okay, it's a little bit cheesy, but there's something here that I think we need to hear. Do you know about Jesus? Or do you know Jesus? That business quip that uh, titles the sermon, it's not what you know, but it's who you know. When you think about it, we don't ever really hear people say, it's not what you know about, it's who you know about. Like That wouldn't really make sense. Uh, And it wouldn't be good business advice uh, at all, just to know about, you know, I know about Bill Gates, you know. I know about Mark Zuckerberg, who cares? Um, it's not, it, do you know about Jesus or do you know Jesus? The controversial rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, whose followers upend the most powerful empire on earth, whose life and death literally defines our sense of time, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the burning bush, reveals himself to Moses, and even gives Moses, he, he, he tells Moses his name, 
And I heard this a couple of weeks ago uh, about the name. Knowing somebody and knowing their name, and there's something very relational and intimate about knowing someone's name. And God gives his name, Yahweh. And in English, and and I'm, I'm no scholar in this area, but in English... There's these, there are these words, we, in every language, but we have these words that, that mimic and sound almost like they, what they're describing. Onomatopoeia, for the, you know, if you, for English. And Yah, I heard it described that Yahweh, God's name, like that's his name, he gives that name, he says, this is my name, I am who I am. Yahweh is actually onomatopoeic-like. It's almost like breathing. Yahweh. Yahweh. And God's name is, as, God is as close as our next breath. That was, power, that was very powerful to me. This idea that uh, there's a sense of intimacy uh, with the God of the universe. And we can, we can build our, our theologies and we can, we can our, our sense of God, we want to be awed and we want to be wowed. And we need, I think we need to have a sense of God as, as holy other from us, transcendent, sovereign, powerful. Because our temptation in our time is towards, uh, we lean a little bit more towards the, uh, we become pretty chummy and buddy-buddy with Jesus. And we need to have that, that sense as well. But this God wants to know us. He wants us to know Him that is profound. When I was uh, heading off to university, which is how I, I came out to British Columbia, I remember there was a, a leader in, our, in the church congregation I was a part of. His name is Don, and good family friends. And he told, you know, whenever people go off to university, I, I spend my, my time with grade 12s, and, and so my whole year is always about, you know, sending kids off, and there can be this sense of, of fear out into the unknown, oh my goodness, and, you know, are they going to go off the rails, and, and uh, we got to, you know, build fences, right, build fences, um, dig wells, right, and Don, I remember he was over, he was at my, my parents' home as I was preparing to leave home, I think I was flying out the next day, and uh, I, mean, I was going to Trinity Western, which, you know, on a scale of, you know, horrible things you can, you can do with your life. I mean, this, was, this was pretty good. And, uh, but I remember Don saying to me, he said, David, like when you're, going to, you're going to Christian university, you're going to a university, and he, he used, I'm paraphrasing memories from years ago, but something to this effect. Um, you're going to learn a lot about Christianity. You're going to learn a lot about uh, faith. But don't forget, knowing uh, that God wants to know you and know Jesus. Don't just fill your mind with stuff about him. As important as that is, and, and that's my bent. I, I, that's, that's sort of my, uh, my, my approach to faith has largely been academic, and, and I, I flourished in those years, and it, it shaped me in profound ways uh, coming out to BC. But I always remember Don saying that to me uh, about not forgetting uh, about knowing Jesus. This is kingdom principle, and kingdom principles pop up everywhere. 
you can think about people who uh, know a lot about Jesus. Jesus himself said this to another group of religious leaders. He actually quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Isaiah, who is saying very much the same thing. The prophet was channeling God's frustration generations earlier when he says, they honor me with words, with lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus also says, not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom. It's kingdom principle. There's one other story. And many of us know this story. And I, I hope you've got a sense that, that we should upend or maybe just uh, think anew. See it from a slightly different angle. Stories that might be familiar to us. And this one is, of course, the, the story of the prodigal son, which uh, I found very helpful from uh, Pastor Timothy Keller uh, in New York. Uh, he renamed it. He says it actually shouldn't be called the prodigal son, right? It, it, it's actually the story of two brothers. It's a parable about two brothers. And he has this whole wonderful thing on, uh, you know, we, we focus so much of our, our attention on the prodigal who, who goes off and, and goes off the deep end and, uh, and, and returning home. But there's this older brother, right, that's in the background, and he's done, everything, he's done everything, you know, in his father's house, his father's business. He's remained devout. He knows a lot about faith and right living. But it's the prodigal who is, ultimately becomes center set. His, his orientation uh, pivot. I, I, I just picture that moment. And it's, it's kind of a grimy moment, right? Like he was in the, uh, the, the pig sty and, and all the slop and all of the, uh, all of the, just, I can't imagine how that would smell. And I just picture that moment when he gets up from the way that he's been living and recognize, you know, has nothing left. And it's that first step that he takes, starting back, I don't know how far he had to travel, a few kilometers, a couple cities over, I have no idea how far away he went, but returning to his father's house. That is directional. The focus was on returning home. And the father in the story, of course, probably had a fence, actually, right? But his property line, right? You know, he saw his son from far off, but it's that o the older brother and the younger brother. The focus is on returning home. Those are king that's kingdom principles. I'm going to invite our our worship team. We're going to do some response very soon, uh, but I want to conclude uh, with the words. Uh, this is actually, it's a communion hymn. Now, we did, we did communion last week, and so, uh, but we're, we're communing together this morning. And it plays with this idea of knowing about and having lots of knowledge or knowing Jesus himself. Charles Spurgeon, a uh, great theologian, preacher, also hymn writer, apparently. This is the third verse of a communion hymn that he wrote in the 19th century. And it says this, If now, with eyes defiled and dim, we see the signs, but see not him. Oh, may his love the scales replace and bid us see him face 
to face. There's an intimacy there to see somebody face to face, uh, to, to displace scales that we can't see, uh, and we don't want to miss. You can see the signs externally of the kingdom, of good things happening in our world. But do we know the king at the center of the kingdom? Do we know Jesus? And some of the songs that we've been uh, singing this morning and we're going to sing uh, in response are about knowing Jesus. We have a prayer team that is always available at the sides. And I invite you, as we reflect on our, uh, on our own situation, as we reflect on our, our lives, what brought you here this morning, uh, there are uh, people who will pray with you. And I encourage you, it doesn't have to be just at the side. Uh, you can pray in the aisle and reflect on knowing Jesus and the orientation uh, of our life. We pray for us, we'll sing, and we'll have a benediction. Father, we've been thinking through Scripture and the encounters that Jesus has with all sorts of people. And again and again, what we would expect to happen or to be said uh, is flipped on uh, its side or on its head. Lord, you want to know us. Lord, you gave your son for us. And we can be consumed with busyness and we can be uh, involved in so many things and in quietness and stillness. We want to ask that question. Are we far off? Are we oriented towards you? You want to know us. You love us. And we thank you for what you did at the cross, what you've done beyond the cross because of the, the cross, the resurrection, as we're in Easter season moving towards Pentecost and celebrating and remembering uh, that your spirit is here even now working among us. Uh, would you empower us uh, in knowledge of you uh, to, to serve you in the world as it is, fueled with passion and a hunger for knowing how it ought to be, and that we would be centered on knowledge and love of you, the King. In Jesus' name, amen.